All right, hey, good morning, Illuminate. Good to see you all. Chris mentioned some of the folks that are watching in different places. We actually heard from some folks that are watching from Australia, and they're watching in a pub. So <laughs> Jesus would be so proud. Yeah, it's great. We love it. We love it. Uh, if you're new, welcome. We have, for the last uh, five weeks, been digging in, studying, exploring, applying this amazing book in the New Testament. It's the book of Acts. The full title of the book is Acts of the Apostles. And really what it is, is it's a history of the early church. kind of explains how we got to be where we're at now. And we've been seeing the truthfulness of Jesus' words when he said, a great statement, he said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against her. And this is what we've seen. In a period of about 40 days after Jesus' death, Jesus makes these post-resurrection appearances. And that changes everything. The church expands from about 120 to several thousand in less than two months. It's in a super exciting time. All these signs and wonders are taking place to the apostles. But not everybody's excited. There is that group, the same group that had Jesus delivered up to be crucified, the religious elite, the religious leaders, they're furious to their horror. See, they thought they had dealt a blow, the death blow literally to Christianity by having Jesus crucified. And now, to their great surprise and annoyance, they have an even bigger problem on their hands because the followers of Jesus are becoming very, very vocal. Not hostile, but vocal. Why? We've said it so many times in the last few weeks. There is no way Christianity gets off the ground without resurrection. You understand what I'm saying? They saw, learned from, ate with Jesus. The one who was nailed to a cross and put in a tomb. Early on, his little band of rebels were frightened. But then all of that begins to change. Because Jesus did what he said he was going to do. He came back from the dead and all of human history from that moment forward be changed forever. So there is opposition from the outside. But Jesus is going to build his church. And if the gates of Hades aren't going to stop it, no external threat will. But then in chapter 5, we saw an internal threat, right? It's the first recorded instance of sin within the Christian camp. And so God decides to deal with it personally. Why? To send a very strong and sobering message. And the message is this. Don't mess with my bride. Husbands, if you're married, you understand. If someone begins to attack the purity of the one whom you're married to, you're going to take offense to that. You're going to do everything in your power to prevent that from happening. Well, the church is the bride of Christ. And so what happens is this guy named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, they want to have the appearance of being generous without being generous. And they sell some property and they lie about the proceeds. They withhold some, but they act like, full disclosure, they're confronted they continue the lie, and God intervenes in a really profound way. And the two of them are carried out in body bags. And you're like, okay, what's up with that? Well, as we talked about last week, 
Jesus cares about the purity of his church. And when I say church, what I'm talking about is you, Christian. Jesus cares about the purity of his church. Why is that? Because it's our purity that gives us influence. What is the number one reason why people don't want to attend church? Because it's full of hypocrites. So when there's incongruency between what we say we believe, what we preach, and what we do, we lose all street cred. And nobody wants to hear what we have to say. So purity is very important. So God sends this very, very strong message. And you would think that people would be like, I don't want to be any part of that group. You'd be wrong. Even more people are added to the church's numbers. And the reason why is because people want to be part of what is pure. I think now more than ever, people want to be part of what is pure because there is so much impurity in our world today. So when they see something that is good and wholesome, they're drawn to it. Now we're in chapter 6. What happens in chapter 6 is more opposition. And this is internal conflict. Uh, Not long ago, people were asked, why do you leave your church? Why do you leave your church? It's an interesting question, right? Top three responses. Number one, they're not being fed spiritually. Probably a good reason to leave. Number two, they're not being challenged spiritually. Maybe another good reason to leave. Number three, third reason why people leave their church, interpersonal conflict. Believe it or not, this is going to shock some of you, not everybody is as likable as you. (laughs) Ha! Right? Not everybody is as gregarious and warm as you. Would they all be? Um, So this is real. Right? I, I had a... A retired pastor come up to me after the first service. He'd been in pastoral ministry for many years. I love these guys, man. Uh, just boots, yeah, just, I mean, these guys are just, oh, I love them. I mean, they're always soldiering for Christ. And he said, I used to preach this message called porcupine Christianity. I was like, oh, I see where you're headed. Because when we come into cl- close proximity with, with each other, you know, we can rub each other the wrong way and we offend each other. You know, what happens when when there's conflict underneath our own roof. Isn't it interesting of all the things that Jesus would pray for before he left John chapter 17, what does he say? God, I pray that they would be unified. Unity is important because it sends a message to those on the outside that in the midst of of all of our, our differences, whether it's socioeconomic, ethnic, all of these differences under this roof, there is great unity. The world is longing for this, you know. Our country is longing for this, you know. Do you not think that God saw these days coming? Do you not think that perhaps he wasn't preparing the church to speak into these times? So what happens when there's conflict in the ranks. Well, chapter 6, first seven verses. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. And here's why. Because the widows of the Hellenists were not being taken care of. They were being neglected in the daily distribution. What does that mean? Well, in Acts chapter 5, we learn that Christians are selling their possession and they're giving to those who have legitimate needs. So, there were some legitimate needs that weren't being met. Now, what's interesting is that the early church was made up of Jewish converts, right? 
So what we learn here is that under the church's roof are two distinct groups now of Jewish believers. You have the Hellenist Jews and you have the Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek. They did not live in Jerusalem for the most part. The Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. And for the most part, they lived in the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's what it's been said. That everybody looks down on someone. There is prejudice within every human heart. Everybody looks down. Everybody criticizes someone else in some way. It's within the human heart. So these two groups did not get along even before they met Christ. The Hellenistic Jews had their own Greek Hellenistic synagogues. The Hebraic Jews looked down on them because they didn't speak the sacred language of the Old Testament. They didn't speak Hebrew. Plus, they didn't live in the holy city of Jerusalem. So the Hebraic Jews have a tendency to look down on the Hellenistic Jews. And now the Hellenistic Jews, their widows are being neglected. Their basic needs aren't being met. So you can see this is just like it's ready to explode under God's roof. Now, we've said it before. We'll be saying it pretty much every week here on out. There is nothing like Christianity. Nothing comes, nothing comes close to biblical Christianity. There is nothing, no one that can be compared to Jesus. Whatever culture throws at you to try to get you to divide, Jesus unites. Here are these two groups that would otherwise not play together, but now they're both recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. See, they know their Old Testaments. They're familiar with all those prophecies that speak with great specificity about a forthcoming Messiah. I mean, things like where he would be born, how he would be born, in Bethlehem, of a virgin, death by crucifixion. We get those details in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before Jesus was born. It's all there. Crucifixion, it hadn't even been invented yet by the Persians and yet the details of it are spoken of hundreds of years in advance. So they understand their Old Testaments and they're recognizing, now wait a minute, we're going to be open-minded and open-hearted. And that's really the key in becoming a Christian because the evidence is overwhelming. And they say clearly, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies. He's the Messiah. Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew Jews believing the same thing coming together. Now they are both one in Christ. Or are they? This is a big threat to the unity of the church. So what are they going to do? And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right, this is very interesting, it is not right that we, the apostles, should give up preaching. We shouldn't give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, that's the key, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, again the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Perminus, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed. They laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came to obedience to the faith. So, church is growing, it's growing rapidly, and fast-growing churches can be super fun to be a part of. They can also be really messy. Really messy. 
because sometimes your growth outpaces your leadership capabilities. If you're in any position of leadership, that, 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 that's, that happens very often. Additionally, you might not have the infrastructure to help support the fast momentum and the fast-paced growth. And that can be a problem as well. And so this, this causes a conflict. This is very real. These are real challenges. There's a complaint. And as it turns out, this is actually a legitimate complaint. Oh, by the way, not all complaints are legitimate. Just need to say that. <laughs> this one is. And the reason why is because we have our Bibles. And in James chapter 1, verse 27, it says this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure is this. You want to know what pure, undefiled religion looks like? To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think I could actually make the argument that if you want to keep yourself from being polluted from the world, help those who can't help themselves. I think the two are actually inextricably tied. Now, what does that mean, all right? What does it mean that um, pure religion is to help orphans and widows? Back in the day, there was no welfare system. Orphans and widows, yeah, they had to depend on the kindness of others. Yeah, they might not make it, um, right? There, yeah, there was no welfare system. So the church steps into the space First and foremost, the church takes care of its own. If you were to help an orphan or a widow, they have nothing. You don't expect anything in return except for maybe a thank you. Alternatively, have you ever been in a situation you don't have to answer out loud where you've been tempted to help someone who is wealthy because maybe they might do something kind for you in return? It happens. Is that altruistic? Maybe not so much so. But you help an orphan or a widow, there's nothing they can do for you in turn. So in this sense, it is pure. So this is a very, very legitimate complaint. Now, what I've noticed in my 25 plus years of pastoral ministry is that in addition to not all complaints being legitimate, what happens very often in the church is that some people will take the things that they like, the things that they prefer, and they will flip them into what becomes prejudicial. Uh, for example, someone might say, I like things in church to be just like this. I like all worship songs to be like this. I like all preaching to be like this. Okay. Um, you know, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes the church as the household of faith. You know what that means? This is a family. We're family. So in your family, does any one family member always get what he or she wants? They better not. That's super unhealthy. Why would you feed our innate tendency to be self-centered? No, that's going to be a very dysfunctional home. So it's actually good that we enter into each other's spaces and we adopt the kind of mentality that says, hey, you know what, this may not be my favorite worship song, but man, it blesses you. Look, it moves you to tears, and you know what? I couldn't be happier. I'll enter into worship through your worship. I'll receive a blessing by seeing you receive a blessing. 
And so this is really Christian maturity. This the church is not described as an organization or a business. It, we need to be organized, but we're not an organization or a business. We are a movement. And when the Spirit of God moves in whatever way amongst the hearts of God's people, there will be some diversity. There will be some style differences. When my kids were little growing up in our home, everybody had to take responsibility for themselves. You had to clean up your room. You had to make up, you know, clean up after yourself, your messes. But then you also had to take responsibility for others. So it's your turn to do the dishes tonight. You're going to be picking up after the dog. I'll vacuum. Why? Well, we have all these verses that tell us to serve one another in love. And there should be no other place on the planet that does that more or better than the church. Let me say that again. There should be no other place on the planet that does it more or better than the church. So th- this is a, a, a real problem. And, um, and what do you do? What do you do when there are legitimate complaints? Well, we shouldn't be gossip gossips or we shouldn't be divisive about it, but concerns are taken to leadership, so, all right? So leadership, let's talk about leadership. So at Illuminate, our leadership structure is such that we have elders and pastors. All pastors fit the biblical qualifications of what it means to be an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But we have elders who govern. And the reason why we have elders who govern is because the scriptures tell us that we are to submit one to another. That's very important. So here's how it plays itself out. If a pastor or an elder does something that is not in the best interest of the congregation, there will be, there will be discussions. We like to call them come to Jesus meetings. <laughs> because it's not about you. It's not about me. Jesus is the chief shepherd of this congregation. The rest of us are under shepherds. Okay? That's how it works. So there has to be accountability. And in the absence of accountability, I guarantee you there will be chaos. So this is, that's why there must be healthy leadership structure. So this is a legitimate complaint. It's being dealt with in the right way. They take it to leadership. Leadership acts on it. Verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should deal with this. Now that's a really interesting response. We shouldn't give up preaching the word of God to serve Tables. Literal, the literal translation of this verse is, we should not give up serving the word in order to serve tables. In other words, what they're saying is, we should, we should be waiters of God's word and not waiters on the dining table. Isn't that interesting? Now you say, well, what's the deal? Are they copping an attitude? Do they think they're above it? Uh, no. Because at this time, Christians are not being slapped around and in prison and beaten for serving orphans and widows. They are being beaten for preaching the gospel. And these leaders say, that's us, folks. That is the ministry that God has called us to. One that involves serious beatdowns, and we will not give that up. <laughs> we will not stop preaching. Now, these are legitimate needs. There's, by the way, there's a great leadership principle here. One of the reasons why some pastors burn out, it's right here. One of the reasons why some churches stay small, the reason is right here. Because the pastor thinks that he has to do everything. And all of a sudden, he's like, I can't do this anymore. So, you have a gift, you have a talent, you have a skill, you have experiences, all the things that make you uniquely you for the purpose of serving the body. And the quicker you can get into that seat, undistracted, the healthier we will be. 
See, that's a great, that is a great leadership principle. So often leaders think they have to do everything. But there is a seat that you sit in as a leader. Then that seat carries responsibilities and roles that have to be carried out. And if you get distracted from that, the entire organization suffers. The same is true with the church being in pastoral ministry. This is why our primary job as pastors and elders is to equip saints to do the work of the ministry. Because the reality is, you have gifts that I don't have. You have experiences that I don't. You have a sphere of influence. You can speak into people's lives that I would never listen to me. So when, when people ask me what I do, people that I don't know, they, if, if I'm on a plane or if I get my hair cut, something like that, you know, they, they say, well, what do you do? And it's always one of, one of two responses. I say, I'm a minister. And some people will just, at, at that second, they will open up their entire lives and tell me their life story, man, everything. But let me tell you, that's a real privilege. That's a pretty sacred honor. They will be sharing things with me that they haven't shared with anybody. And we don't even know them. It's either that response or it's, well, good for you. You know, like I just graduated from kindergarten with my diploma, you know. Good for you. It's that, that there's a scene in the movie Chariots of Fire. You might be familiar with it where, you know, Eric Little is, he's one of the greatest runners of his time. And there's this conversation he's having with his sister. And because Eric is a man of He's a, he's a Christian. He's a man of religious conviction. He refuses to run on the Sabbath. Most races are on the Sabbath. And because he refuses to run on the Sabbath in violation of what God would want for him, based on his own conviction of what day is the Sabbath, he says, I, I'm just not going to do it. And so by not running in those races, he just, you know, he's forfeiting. Other people who are slower than he is are winning the medals and getting the accolades. And his sister's kind of out of her mind going, just run. Just run. You will go down as one of the greatest runners in history. And he makes this great. Every once in a while, Hollywood just nails it. And you're like, pause, rewind. Hollywood ju just got some truth on you. He says, you know, I realize that God created me to run. Oh, there's a tremendous amount of self-awareness there. In other words, he says, my gift, that comes to me from God. And he says, when I run, and what's implied is that when I run for God, for his purposes and for his glory, he says, I feel God's pleasure on my life. I want that for you more than anything. I so badly want you to experience the pleasure of God on your life because you understand that you were created for something so much more than what you're living for now. You were created to live for something transcendent and God has gifted you for it. And you know where that starts? Right here in this place. This is why we have this thing called GPS. It helps you discover you're fit for ministry so that when you enter this space, two kinds of people walk into the room. The first one says, here I am. I am ready to be served. That's a rough going church. The other person walks in and says, there you are. How can I serve you? See, this is the way Jesus designed to be. And by the way, Jesus is the example in all things, right? Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and what? It was, listen, no nail held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for you, his church. That is what held him on the cross. So 
I love it because now there's this pattern that's being set down. This is a legitimate need. They take it to the leaders in a legitimate way and it's, um, it's being acted upon. But by the right people because saints do the work of the ministry. What's the criterion for those who serve the church well? Well, it says they need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Christianese, man, what does that even mean? Um, well, we actually have a yardstick by which we can measure this. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 5, and you might know it as the fruit of the Spirit. So that word filled is an interesting one because it can also be translated as controlled. What does a man or woman controlled by the Spirit of God look like? They're controlled by love, joy, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control, which is essential. It's essential for leadership in the church, especially because there will be some really difficult, tense-filled situations that you have to rise above. You don't have the luxury of being immature. And this takes, at times, great humility. But this is what godly decisions are made of. It's not always an easy task, but every single person in this room has something to contribute to the body. And we are just like any other church, I say this all the time, we are healthy only to the degree that our people are plugged in, exercising their spiritual gifts, and serving their brothers and sisters in love. So I was mentored by a pastor who used to have this little plastic egg in the top drawer of his desk. And when someone from the church would meet with him with all these great ideas, they'd say, Pastor, I have a great idea. And they'd share this idea. And the pastor would say, you know what? That is a great idea. That is a great idea. And the person would say, yes, the church should be doing this. And the pastor would take out that little plastic egg and roll it across his desk. And he said, you just laid that little egg. Now go hatch it. And we will resource you, and we will encourage you, and we will lay hands on you, and we will support you. Go hatch that egg. More often than not, the response was, I'm not sure I have time for that. No, no, what I was saying is that the church should be doing this. You are the church. You are the church. I use a real egg. It's more fun. <laughs> Listen to these names, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus. Some of you that are about to have babies. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, from Antioch. You know what's really cool about these names? These are all Greek names. This is brilliant. Because if the widows in need are Greek speakers, you got to serve them well. There's no pride in this thing. Let the Greek-speaking believers in Christ minister to them. That's effective. That's smart. People are like, have you ever heard someone say, I'm just so against organized religion. What's your alternative? Disorganized? Now, here's the thing. I've seen org charts in churches <laughs> that looks like the subway map to New York City. You know what I mean? There's lines like, and you're like, if the organization doesn't serve to advance the ministry, get rid of it. Because sometimes you can organize the Holy Spirit out of a church. So, it's effective. Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. How so? Well, because saints are doing the work of the ministry. They're taking care of these legitimate needs. And as a result, beautiful. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of, this is interesting, a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. 
This is pretty cool. So now what you're seeing is, it doesn't say chief priests. Chief priests were the guys who explicitly said, Jesus must die. But there are other priests. They read their Bibles. They're open-minded. They're open-hearted. They read the prophecies and like, okay, we can't really deny the fact that Jesus is the, Jesus is the man, the God-man. We can't deny. We can't ignore this stuff. So now priests are coming to faith in Christ. Um, the other very significant thing about this group of men is that because they're Greek speakers, they will take the ministry of the apostles way further than what these 12 men could do. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses, and we're going to start in Jerusalem. Then it's going to go to Judea, Samaria, and then we're going to take it worldwide. Now, outside of Jerusalem, what was the common language? Greek. So now, these Hebraic Jews are like, we need to work together. Because if we're going to fulfill the words of Jesus, we need a lot of diversity here under this roof. We need a lot of diversity. We need people from all walks of life. Because that's how this Jesus movement is going to spread. Stephen in particular will hold a special place quickly. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. This is a synagogue that held... Jews who had been, uh, they had certain freedoms that were given to them by the Romans. Uh, Then they were the Cyrenians of the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. They rose up and they started arguing with Stephen because Stephen is laying down all this gospel truth from the Old Testament, talking about Jesus. And these people in this, this synagogue are, they're arguing with him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So they have to do an end run. Then they secretly instigated men. They're stirring people up. Now we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they, say, they seized Stephen. They brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses. Man, it's getting bad. This will be the beginning of the end of the beginning for Stephen. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and law. These are some serious accusations. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And he's going to change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This man Stephen, is, he's undermining our Jewish faith. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. More on his life later, but interesting little comment here at the end. There's one other mention in scripture. And by the way, the people accusing him, they know their Bibles. They should know this. One other guy whose face was made to shine in the presence of God, Moses. Moses was God's man. So it's almost as if God is saying, listen, remember my boy boy Moses whom y'all rejected, right? All your ancestors rejected. See, yeah, I caused his face to shine. What I'm saying is he was with me. He was on my team. Now you all are rejecting my man, Stephen. Well, guess what? I'm going to make his face like the face of Moses. Don't reject him. Don't make the same mistake that your, your forefathers did. I think it's also highly likely and very possible that one of the men from this group that's arguing with Stephen is a guy by the name of Saul. The Bible's here. I'll stand over here. I think it might be Saul who later becomes Paul because he hears what Stephen is talking about. Saul is a really smart guy. He studies the scriptures. He's listening to what Stephen lays down and this will become instrumental when he has a Damascus Road encounter with Jesus. So, what does this mean for you? 
Let me just tell you where it all starts. It starts by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, please don't leave the room without saying, look, God, I recognize what I know to be true, what others know to be true about me. It's the reason why the world is jacked up. I have a sin issue. That's why Jesus came, to take upon himself all your junk. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. You give him all of your junk, he gives you eternal life. It's a solid deal for you. Then there are those who are here, and I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, there's a big difference between attending the church, knowing the church, and being the church. Jesus is going to build it. But he builds it with you. You're a crucial part. You're a, a crucial piece of what God wants to do through this body. We're not going to make it without you, actually. Let me be more specific. I need you. I do. I need you to play your part in my life. You need me to play my part so that the body of Christ can be built up to the fullness. Too many Christians are sitting on the bench. If there was ever time to get in the game, it's now. There is a wave of hurt in this world. Some of us are bringing some of that into this room. As God ministers to us, we minister to others. Of all the things that Jesus could leave us with as a reminder, he says, let's just bring it all back to this. My death. My death, followed by my burial, followed by my resurrected life. And because Jesus has the power to conquer death, he will extend that power to those who believe in him. So Father, another rich text, God, thank you. Lord, I pray for those who are far from you, for those who are hurting. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd minister to each one right where they're at. Father, as we enter into this time of reflection, remembrance, thinking about the words of the Apostle Paul, we want to come before you as your followers in purity and holiness. We come before the cross and we just, you know, it's all there. We're all sinners and exposed as in need of a Savior. And that's exactly what we get. Father, we bring our hurts in our wounds we lay him at the foot of the cross we receive exactly what we need healing, we receive forgiveness, mercy grace, all the things that then we give to those around us Lord speak to every heart in the room now as only a supernatural supreme God can we ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible the name of Jesus Christ Amen